again, good morning and welcome to each one of you that's here. We're delighted to have you here. I hope you're delighted to be assembled together with those of Lake Precious Faith. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Heavenly Father, what a culture-changing verse that is what a culture-changing verse that would even be within the culture of the church if the church could get on board and understand what you're saying. Lord, what a, a difference it would be if marriages reflected the original intent of God, if marriages faithfully were a running illustration of the relationship of Christ to the church. What a joy that would be, what a blessing, what a benediction that would be to the entire body of Christ, to the world, and, and to the proclamation of the gospel. So Lord, help us in these difficult passages not to dodge them, to dodge the difficult parts of it, your scripture is, is, is written here and it is to be read and, and understood and explained amongst the body of Christ. So help us to do that with, uh, with clarity. And uh, Lord, I would pray that you would tune our hearts to, first of all, love what you love, hate what you hate, and have lives that are absolutely focused on being pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read that passage one more time, and then we're going to go to a whole host of other verses. We're going to be going into the Old Testament. We're going to be going into some uh, parts of the writing of Paul. And it might immediately occur to you, if you're going to do that, why are you doing it having read this passage? And what do all of those passages have to do with this passage? And I'm expecting that that will become clear because when we get to the passage where Paul is uh, addressing the church, and that address was an encyclical, it was supposed to be circulated around the church, we're going to find a place that if some of you have been thinking, okay, so Pastor Howard has taken a line on verse 18, and I've had other people say something else, and so I'm not sure, you know, which one I'm going to believe. Wonderfully, we have the Apostle Paul commenting on this passage and, and giving his take on it, which is going to be, I think, good for us. But for the record, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That's something that we need to download, even though it is um, an inconvenient truth. He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Well, last week we looked at the fuller teaching of by Jesus on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. If you haven't uh, been caught up to speed on that, I would ask that you would, uh, when you have a moment, do the, the sermons, the two sermons previous, because like Jesus did, he taught on first, here's what marriage is, here's what marriage should be. And so that's two weeks ago. And then we talked about the one accept clause that Jesus talked about. That was last week. And we also looked at why Jesus was content to give such a succinct, abbreviated pronouncement on this occasion. If, if it was, you know, that um, 
there's an accept clause, why didn't he include the accept clause here? Jesus had authoritatively taught and clarified the Deuteronomy 24 passage. The Pharisees in the first century, like the priests in Malachi's day, were divorcing. And they were divorcing largely to facilitate what even were mere weekend flings. And they were teaching that that was acceptable as long as the paperwork was filled out. They were, in the words of Malachi, acting treacherously to the wife of their youth and their companion by covenant. Jesus was reminding them that their continued strident, unrepentant teaching of divorce for any reason was committing adultery in the eyes of God and further leading an entire nation to do the same thing. That's why he just gives them a jolt here. Well, in the passage that we looked at a little bit in Matthew chapter 19, would you turn with me there for a bit? Matthew 19, just to refresh our memory. He says, well, pick up the passage in verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And of course, they're commenting on Deuteronomy 24. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, because of sin, because of the, the word hardness, you've, you've heard of sclerosis, of, and, and, and the hardness, hardening of arteries. And uh, anyway, that, that very term, the, the medical term, was pulled out of this particular word. It's a hardness, inflexible, sick. Sick. Hardness of heart. It is a diseased heart, a sinful heart. Because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you, he didn't command, he permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And then he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And that was so different, that was so, so culturally changing that even good guys, even some of the more... Um, the, the ones you'd expect would be on, on the right page on this. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Going, man, it, are you serious? The, the only time you can divorce your wife is for that? Well, then it'd be better, better not to marry. And Jesus goes on to explain something. He says in very muted, very uh, gracious terms, um, if, if you can live a life without any physical interaction like that, sure. But if you want, if you desire physical interaction, it'll be in marriage. It has to be within the confines of marriage. So what you're claiming there, not everybody's, not everybody's cut out for that. So he gives us here the intention of God and what the intention of God was for allowing and permitting divorce. It was, as we saw last week, the very gracious accommodation to a faithful spouse who'd been living with an unfaithful covenant-breaking spouse. Rather than insisting on the death penalty, the innocent, and by that I mean the relatively innocent party in this situation, could proceed as if the death penalty had been enacted, as if the spouse had been stoned for their sin and that therefore God had separated them by death. They could proceed on that assumption. No provision was expressed for the unrepentant adulterer to remarry. And I don't perform marriages like that either, for the record. But the spouse who had remained faithful could now divorce and remarry. And if there is a divorce, it was for the purpose of remarriage. Okay? This is what Joseph, for example, was contemplating when it was found that Mary was with child. As we've discussed before, in order to enact 
the death penalty, there needed to be a fairly high level of evidence that, that could be brought. And this was an age before spy cams and recorders and all of that, you know. So it was, it was hard actually to bring sufficient evidence even though what had happened was clear. Anyway, uh, Joseph was contemplating doing this, putting, uh, divorcing, giving her a certificate of divorce when it was found that Mary was with child. The case of Mary lacked the strenuous witness requirements for a case where the death penalty was to be enacted, but the case seemed crystal clear to Joseph nonetheless. And God says, no, actually you got it wrong. She, she wasn't um, unfaithful to your, where, where you have been um, betrothed. Go ahead and marry her, God says. All right. We looked at that last time, but there is still another divorce circumstance described in Scripture, and consequently, we have a need to know how New Testament believers should respond. So, let's dive in. Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21. I'm going to proceed on the basis of the, on the assumption that you know some of this story here. But we'll, so we're going to pick up in the story here, verse 9. Now Sarah, oh, let's go in verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the time appointed of which God had spoken to him. So God was not late. And there are times where you've been praying for something for a long time and you're going, man, you know, God could speak a difference into the situation in a moment. Why is he waiting? Because it's not the time appointed. He knows best. He knows best because it's not the right time. At the time appointed, it was... It was done for him as he promised. Abram named the, uh, called the name of a son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, which of course is an onomatopoeic word. It's a word that sounds a little bit like the, the sound it is describing, to snicker. Isaac, Isaac, Isaac type thing, okay. Isaac, you, you love it every time I mention that, but anyway. The son of laughter, son of laughter, because... Both of them kind of go, at our age? And there, there was a chuckle. And it got into the name. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. He's going, she's saying, this is so obviously the kind, beneficent bestowment of God, everyone's going to be going, man, no, nobody's going to be uh, against this, right? Nobody's going to be against this. And she said, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Everyone will laugh with me. Well, not exactly. This was not one of those kind laughs. This is not really a laugh at all. It's more of a sneer. It's a mocking. It's a mocking. They were, they were mocking. Well, what are, we, what are we going to say about this? She is still culturally an Egyptian. That's why it describes here, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. If, if she had culturally changed, if she had culturally become um, like the people that owned her, they wouldn't have described it. When, when, when Moses is saying the Egyptian, he's giving us a little bit of a hint and an insight into her loyalties both ethnically and religiously, okay? So she is still um, in a situation where she is Egyptian by nature, by 
ideology. And here is the son laughing. What we have here is one of the more prominent examples of a spiritually mixed marriage-like relationship. First question, Abraham and Hagar. Look into your little theology book. Are they married? Do they, have they ever entered into a covenant relationship? Was this Abraham showing successive generations how to navigate life? Was this his good example? Was this what God intended in terms of companionship and mutual giving of themselves and then going out into a life in a wonderful, loving co-regency, Abraham and Hagar? Was it marriage? What was going on was a 14-year confusion to the world looking on, and it was a blight rather than a badge for Abraham. But she was still culturally and spiritually Egyptian with all the multitude of false gods that attended with the ethnicity. And in spite of how obviously Isaac was evidence of supernatural intervention by God, probably she quietly mocked, but the boy for sure outwardly had the courage to, in the middle of that whole thing, mock. What was being mocked was the event. What was being mocked was the resultant son. Hagar herself said 14 years earlier that this God of her master was the God who sees. Remember that? She was out in the desert and the angel of the Lord came along and, and found her. And, and she said, you, God, are the God, the El Roy, the God who sees. But now having firsthand evidence she and her son were going to resist and compete with and contend with the supernaturally provided offspring. So, let's ask a few questions. Does God hate divorce? I guess he's made that clear. Did he command it? Well, let's read on. Therefore, she said to Abraham, Sarah saw this, she said to Abraham, this is Sarah, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. He said, I, I don't want them mixed up in the family, don't want them mixed up in the inheritance. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Evidently, there's limited warmth toward Hagar. But God said to Abraham, Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. He's saying there is a greater uh, issue here in terms of spiritual influence and in terms of inheritance because through this line the Messiah was to come. And the son of the maid, I will also make a nation also because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, put them on her shoulder gave her the boy and sent her away, which is a literal translation of the word that is other places just put into one word, divorce. Sent her away. Well, she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away for he said do not let me see the boy die and she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept God heard the lad crying and the angel of God came to Hagar from heaven this is 14 years later said to her what's the matter with you Hagar do not fear for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. It was right there, but she was supernaturally inhibited from seeing it. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. 
God was with the lad. He grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, and on it goes. So here is a situation where God says, send her away. Divorce. Interesting. Did he command it? Really? What was going on here? Was there a need for a clarification of what marriage and what was a running contradiction of the painting God intended marriage to illustrate to his people? Anyway, divorce. And you'd say, why? Well, ultimately because of sin, because of the hardness of hearts. Well, we have another few examples that while we're talking about it, we need to deal with. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. <clears throat> While Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And we know that this was the effect of the false prophet Balaam. Balaam was asked, hired to curse the people of Israel. He was restrained from doing that, but he says, I think I know how to achieve the same ends. And so he was one who initiated and kind of spurred this idea of, I know we can corrupt them through women. And so he does. So here are the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And it's said very politely, very carefully here, but all of the, um, the, the whole draw, the whole... Uh, pull in for all of these pagan sacrifices was there was a large, obvious sexual element in all of the worship. That was why it was so enticing to unconverted Israelites. Well, anyway, so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. What was going on here was there was uh, basically like temple prostitution. He's saying, kill them. Absolutely kill them. So Moses said to the judge of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, the entire group is getting together and they are the faithful ones. They are repenting. They are lamenting their sin. And here's a guy right in broad daylight doing exactly what they're not supposed to be doing. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. He takes this serious. He takes this serious. Let's go to another passage. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 10. Commentaries and commentators, like for example Barack Obama, have commented on that passage and you say, see the Christian God is a racist. Um, what is being protected here is a spiritually mixed family, a spiritually mixed home unit. Anyway, here in Nehemiah chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 28. Um, where am I? Oh, I was about to read chapter 9. Those are good verses too, but we should probably... Um, names a whole bunch of people, and someday we'll get a, somebody who wants to volunteer. They'll read all those names. Verse 28, though, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, also those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, 
and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in the God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And it wasn't racial, some sort of a racial superiority thing. It was that the only folk who had access to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everyone else was walking in paganism. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain and so forth, on the Sabbath they sell it, we'll not buy from them, and so forth. He's saying, we're going to absolutely commit ourselves to the idea we're not going to have spiritually mixed marriages. I'll scoot ahead to verse chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13. We'll pick up the passage in verse... 23, <clears throat> and in those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. This is not very much later, and all of a sudden they're going back on their covenant. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. Oh, well, well, how are you going to read the Word of God? How are you going to understand the Word of God if you don't understand the language that it's written into? At this time, well, all they could understand was the language of his own people. If the children were being raised in a home where they were being taught the word of God, they would have also understood Hebrew. They weren't. So obviously that there was, there was that cultural influence. So I contend with, with them, cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair, made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your, son, or your, for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, regard these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by, and was loved by his God, and his God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to... Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Elashabib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat, the Hornite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O God, because I've, they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each to his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood and appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. He's saying, put those girls aside. Put those girls aside. Interesting. As a concept, turn, if you would, for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It probably came up in your head, so we'll talk about it just briefly. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and they will, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's that relationship. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What's the primary application of that verse? Actually, it's not marriage. The primary, primary application of that verse is following the context, which is you as a church. Don't be doing joint projects with people who have the gospel wrong. And that is one of the things that the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ does frequently here. Well, we, we are co-combatants on this social issue or that social issue. Well, let's lock arms with them and work together with them and... and and, be, you know, and if we make a bigger crowd, we'll make a bigger bust. 
except Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Effectiveness culturally will be all of us obeying the word of God, not getting a big enough crowd. He says the disadvantages of locking arms with people who don't have the gospel right is far more dangerous for the world looking on than any of these cultural ills. There is an enormous difference between working in the same field and working together. And he says as, as a church, don't be doing something where you're locking arms with a group of people who get the gospel wrong. You, what agreement does Jesus Christ have with idols? So we, we shouldn't be doing that collaborative work as a church. Getting involved in some sort of a, a spiritual enterprise with, with other groups that are quote-unquote Christian, but they've got the gospel wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it. But there's a secondary application. There's a principal application. And yes, it does appropriately apply to believers. But it starts here. Don't be marrying. Don't be marrying people who do not have the same spiritual values and the same Lord as you. And I've said that very carefully because there's somebody who says, oh, okay, it's okay if we marry and they're a Christian, and by that they mean they call themselves a Christian. But there's a big difference between people who call themselves Christians and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're about to get married or you're contemplating marriage, or you're looking, you need to be looking at people who not are just running around calling themselves Christians or attend a church. These are people who are evidently people who would look on and say, those people are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or else, how are you going to build a home? How are you going to build a home? Right? So it's not just, I think they're saved, they go to church. Do you know them well enough that they are disciples of Christ they are first and foremost have a primary first loyalty to Jesus. If they don't, it's not like, oh, well, those are super Christians. That's the herd you need to be choosing out of. Nobody else. Nobody else. Well, believers, up until the writing of 1 Corinthians... We're working with the scriptures primarily of the Old Testament. And so they had all of this background where you need to separate from the spiritually mixed. Until the gospel went past the ethnic boundaries of Judaism for 2,000 years to become a worshiper of God, it was required to become a Jew. You want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You needed to become a proselyte. You need to get circumcised. You needed to be be bar mitzvah, become a son of the covenant. That's how you came in. That's why what was going on in the book of Acts was such a, an enormous thing because people were coming to Christ and not becoming Jewish first. They were just coming as Gentiles, which was new stuff. But before that, everybody was needed to become a Jew. As Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews, right? That's the way it was. So someone in the first century could say a tribally mixed marriage was no marriage at all because God did not put them together. Notice I said one other thing there. I said a tribally mixed. I didn't say a racially mixed. Because the truth of the matter is, and Paul mentions this on uh, Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, there are not a whole bunch of different races. Would you do something for me? Look around at the different people that are here. Now you have the pastor's invitation and his permission. Look around at who's around you. Guess what? They're all the same race. They're all the same race. God has made all of them of this. You're, you're in different tribes. A whole bunch of you came from just a wee bit, initially, a wee bit... Uh, east of Turkey and north of Israel, you were the Galas. And Alexander the Great called you the milky-skinned. You're, you're, you're 
forebears, the milky-skinned ones. Your forebears spoke Gallic. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. Okay? They came from the Caucasian mountains, and some of them went off into Europe, and some of them went into uh, Britain. But anyway, some of you are that, but you're all of the same race. You're from different tribes. Anyway, somebody could say, well, racially or even tribally mixed marriages are not marriages because God didn't put them together. Well, that was the case up until Pentecost. But the gospel had gone into pagan nations and the Gentiles did not need to become Jewish to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They needed to believe on Jesus. Tribally mixed marriages were no longer immediately outside the will of the Lord. Now the real issue, which had been the real issue all along, spiritually mixed marriages came into focus. What about spiritually mixed marriages? So did a Jewish believer need to divorce a Gentile believer if they were married? Well, people would say, well, obviously not. Most would have understood that now. But here's where it gets a little sticky. How about if someone married had come to Christ, but the spouse was still stubbornly unsaved? Now what? Now what do we do? Well, if you applied what principles you'd have known from the Old Testament, you'd say, come out from among them and be separate. Put them away. That's using the scriptures that they had extant in their hands, and that's how you would apply it. Was that what we were supposed to do now? Was this a spiritually mixed marriage that must be now terminated? Did staying in the marriage jeopardize the spiritual potential of the children? One of the things that would be going on regularly, routinely, is a Jewish spouse who is adamantly staying in Judaism, therefore an unbeliever, could feel compelled now to put away, divorce the Jewish spouse newly converted to being a disciple of Jesus. That happened a lot. Happened a lot. Now what? So there's a whole new set of circumstances to consider since the gospel had gone to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, to the other most parts of the earth. So we needed more revelation, and Paul provides it for us. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul and I were discussing how deep are we going to, or how deep should I go into the idea of singleness and talk about that. We're not going to go in very deep. What we're hoping to do, if those of you who are, your antennas are up at this moment, uh, Paul and I are working through, pray for us as we're leading, uh, that the Lord would lead us, we're going to be working through the idea of putting on a workshop that would help people kind of define Here's what I do. Here's how I proceed. Here's what I do under my circumstances now. Here's what I should be doing in prep and all of that for people in single. We're going to try and do a workshop on that. That's something upcoming. But for now, we'll just deal a little bit with it. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. Apparently, they wrote a letter and and, and they asked some questions. Paul's responding. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay, so the phrase, touch a woman, is a Hebraism. And it's talking about having a physical relationship with them. Okay, so it's a Hebraism. And first of all, he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Good. Now, in the Middle Ages, somebody uh, read that and go, see, it, the, the best thing to do is to remain unmarried. And the whole thing of, you know, priests and monks and nuns and all... That's not at all what he's saying. He says it's good. It it is not a comparative. And that would have been revelatory for them because in Judaism, they would have understood staying single and not having a whole whack of kids was an act of treachery and an act of disloyalty to your nation. You're not married? Bad. Bad you. you. Of course you're supposed to get married. Smarten up. And Paul here is saying, oh, by the way, it's also good not to be married, not, not to have this. Not better, but it's also good. You, you, you don't have to feel like if this is the case that you're outside the will of God. 
Good to know. It's a, not a comparative. But he says, because of immoralities, and here we have that word we, discussed, we studied a little bit last week. It is based on the word pornea, and it is a general term that refers to all of the various sexual sins. Because of immoralities, porneas, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Because there were many physical relationships, types, floating out there without proper covenant basis. They were something less than marriage. Because there was so much of that, here's what the church needs to be insist on. Husband, wife. Covenant. Married. Permanent. Displaying the relationship of Christ to the church. There were all kinds of stuff going on. People were saying, I'm, we're, we're, we're not going to bother with coloring in the lines. We're going we're to ignore lines. We're just going to do stuff. Because there was so much of that, he says, husband, wife, marriage. That's what's supposed to happen in the church, regardless of what the culture is doing. Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. And unless you're missing the context here, you know what he's talking about. He's not talking about, guys, you need to take out the trash and mow the lawn. Fulfill the duty. He's talking about the physical relationship. Within marriage, maintenance of physical relationship, a very regular maintenance of the physical relationship is a duty. And most of the guys here are going, I like that duty. Yeah, I know. But, but the point is, it is a duty. It is, you need to be doing this. It is, this is not something where, okay, God's point of view on this is that it is lamentable. No. This is how, this is something that God deliberately baked into the relationship and the relationship needs to maintain physical intimacy. It's a duty. You, you, you do it because that's how you keep a relationship young and fresh. You, you keep that up. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Some of your translations have defrauding. There's no such thing as you do this, this, and this, or there's no sugar tonight. That, that is, using the relationship as a bargaining chip is sin. It's sin. Because in, a, in the marriage, a Christian marriage, it is a given duty. So stop depriving one another. Um, he says here, Husband, you don't own your body. Wife, you don't own your body. How do I, I, I want to do this in such a way that nobody feels awkward. Okay, so, gentlemen or ladies, if all of a sudden you have an extreme tickle in your nose, I don't know if some of you have that, I do, I, you know, all of a sudden I go, and, and, and you just about pull it right off because you got this tickle in your nose. It would be pretty awkward if I had to say, oh, uh, honey, I, could, uh, could you put the phone down? I need to scratch my nose. No, like my wife would never think, oh, okay, but he needs to ask permission. Well, ladies, does your husband feel that kind of freedom to have a physical relationship with you as he would to scratch his nose, or vice versa. That's one way to go. Oh, and by the way, in the midst of all that, you are supposed to be in a situation where you're not pleasing yourself, you're pleasing the other. That's the counterbalance. So stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, and the idea there is a short time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The idea of having a marriage 
constructing a marriage and saying, well, I just, we're, not, we're going to proceed without that. You're proceeding outside the blessing of God. And you say, yeah, I know, but we're, we're, we're a husband and wife and we can kind of chart our own course. No, God charts the course. And the answer is no. The answer is no. Okay? All right. He says, don't do that because you're going to be exposing practically your spouse to all kinds of temptation or you to tempt. And, and besides, that's not how marriage was designed. He says, but this I say by way of concession, not command. The word concession there is, uh, has the two words soon, which means together, and to speak. And it, it's the idea of putting things together, putting necessary details together. He's saying, I'm, I'm putting all these details together, but I'm not saying you have to get married. That's his point. But if you are married, this is what you need to be doing. Let's go on. Yet I wish that all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and the other in that. What does he mean by even as myself? I wish everybody was like me. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I am. So what he's doing is he's saying, I would like you, I'd prefer that you were a gamos, like me. What does that mean? A gamos. Well, some of your translations have unmarried, and, and people are thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, in, in this text, for example, it doesn't mean, it, it becomes very clear, unmarried is listed as a separate item to widows. So unmarried does not mean that your husband or your spouse died. And then if you scoot ahead to... Um, verse 34, the woman who is unmarried and a separate con uh, uh, category, the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. So unmarried does not mean never been married virgin. So we have four categories here. We have the married. We have virgins, people who have never been married. We have widows, people whose spouses have died, and we have the agamos. Gamos married the alpha primitive in front, negating it. They are the unmarried. They were married. They're no longer married now. We would say divorced. Divorced. So he's giving some instruction on the divorce, which would have been a big deal, which would have been a major social thing, because here it is, the gospel's going in, people are getting saved, and, and sometimes, gloriously, God brings both spouses together. And sometimes, for his own reasons, only one spouse comes and the other one gets very, very hard. And the other one gets very, very hostile. Or the other one leaves. And we need to know, now what do we do? Now what do we do? And so now he's giving some advice on what we do with that. How do we, how do we handle this? So, unmarried, not widows, verse 8, not the never married, verse 34, the agamos, a divorced person, either before or after coming to Christ. And Paul may have been either a widower or somebody whose wife had left him. And he's saying... Um, but he had maintained something since then where he did not become remarried, or he would have been one of the married. He was one of the agamos. Okay. So he says, I would prefer, I would, I would like it if it, it would be preferable, particularly under the circumstances they were in, um, to the unmarried, to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. But he says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The word self-control there is used one other place, and it's used where it's talking about Olympic athletes, like it's the, actually it was a, there was a set of games that were bigger than the Olympics. They were the Smithian games. And one of the requirements was absolutely regimented, Spartan-like discipline. Okay? And he uses that word here. 
okay, not, not everybody is going to be able to be that kind of a Spartan discipline. That, that's not how they're wired. He's saying, okay, so if they do not have that where that is a part of their makeup, let them marry. And it is in the um, command. It, it's not, okay, let, it, it is like, um, it, it's a command, okay? Let them marry. You, you need to marry under those circumstances. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It is better to be in a situation where you are not continually being distracted by that. Because if you're continually being distracted by that, the quality and the quantity of your actual spiritual service will go down. And that's the thing we're going to find here, is that for some people, they need to be married to be undistracted. And for some, it is better for them to stay single, and because that's better for them in terms of being undistracted. And you need to figure out which one of those you are. Oh, and by the way, if you're married, you're not one of those. You're not one of those. You're married. So follow that course. But we'll go on. But to the married, I give instruction. Okay? So these are people who are married. Is their spouse a believer or an unbeliever? It doesn't say, so it applies to both. Okay? I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. Meaning, he's not saying... Uh, I'm, I'm giving my opinion or whatever. What he's saying is, I am now commenting on, I am now giving further light on something the Lord says. So I'm clarifying something the Lord said, all right? That the wife should not leave her husband. Basically, what he's giving you is the digest of Luke chapter 16, verse 18. If we're looking at Luke chapter 16, verse 18, and here we are wandering off in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Pastor Howard, why are we here? Because we're looking at what Paul says. Here's how you apply it. Here it is. The wife should not leave her husband. That's good, isn't it? Basic. Just nails it. But... If she does leave, she must remain unmarried. What in the world is that talking about? He says, don't get, don't get unmarried, don't get divorced, but, but if you do get divorced, if you, if you do leave, actually, sorry, verse 11, you must remain unmarried. You, you must remain, you not, must not remarry or else be reconciled to your husband so that the husband would, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So he says, here's the general rule. Don't get divorced. And he, but he allows for this. He's, he's understanding that there's going to be circumstances where people get separate. She leaves or he leaves anyway. What, what's he talking about? Clear and imminent physical harm clear and imminent physical harm to the wife or to the kids. I counsel, those kids are in danger, you're in physical danger, imminent, and it's not just in your head, get out of there. So it's a situation where you need to get out of the home, now what do we do? Well, don't get remarried, not yet, because there's a chance that some of this is going to get sorted out, God could get a hold of that person's heart, whatever, and then if that's the case, and you haven't remarried, and the other person hasn't remarried, then we put the marriage back together. But for now, don't get remarried. That's the situation. If you're in the sound of my voice and you go, that's how it started out, but now this other person has gone and got remarried, um, that, that marriage is done, that marriage is broken, and, and now your situation is different. But we'll talk about that more in a bit. Because that person who remarried has been unfaithful. Remember, we said, has committed an act of mokai, an act of unfaithfulness to the original covenant. That, that's what's happened. Anyway, to the married I give this instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Don't, don't be doing that. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. 
Okay, so he says a little further, verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. Okay, so now we have a spiritually mixed marriage. And she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So, contra Nehemiah 13 and Numbers 25, this is a new situation. This is a new set of circumstances. If you had applied those verses and those concepts, you'd have said, send her away. Now he's saying under the New Testament time, no, you don't. Yeah, but, yeah, but my spouse isn't saved. That's okay. All right? So now this, the rule is don't put them away. goes on. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must send, not send her husband away. No desertion, no eviction. Even if the person is unsaved. And, and somebody's going to come along and say, well, what if the two of them are saved? Well, that's obvious. No desertion, no eviction. You're supposed to be living together. You say, well... It, it, there's these problems, like we get together and we get angry and we get fight and we fight. So probably God's will is that we should part. No. God's will is that you should deal with your anger. God's will is that you should deal with your sense of entitlement. God's will is that you would all collectively deal with the stuff that is poisoning your relationship. That's what God has put on your plate to deal with in your relationship. But that's not just cause for divorce. That's not just cause for divorce. Here's one, or we'll, we'll get to one in a minute. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does that mean? If you're married to a Christian woman, all of a sudden you become a Christian? No, because then he wouldn't be calling you an unbeliever. You're still an unbeliever, but there is a special blessing that comes on the home where at least one of them is a believer. There is the goodness of God being shed out on this home because one of them is a believer and the unbeliever gets some of that benefit even though they're not personally connected. And so he says, don't mess with that. And some would say, well, I, I probably should divorce my unsaved husband because then our kids are going to be... No, no. God is saying here, no, you stay in there. You want to be in the will of God, not how you think it should be. You want to be in the will of God. And he's saying, there is not going to be any particular handicap for your kids, even if you're in a mixed relationship, if you're doing the will of God. Stay there. Stay there. Yet... If the unbelieving one leaves, okay? That happened a lot in this day. If the unbelieving one leaves, now we have another imperative. Let him leave. Let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. You are not under bondage to make it work even if the guy takes off or kicks you out, if they're an unbeliever. If they are a believer and they're acting that way, come and talk to some pastor because we need to go talk to them because that can't go on. But if they're an unbeliever, he says, let them, it's a command, let them depart, let them divorce, okay? God has called us to peace. You go, but if I hang on to him and I, and I make all kinds of compromises, even spiritually dodgy compromises, and keep him there, maybe it'll, it'll work to him coming to faith. Well, he says, for you do not know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband, or you do not know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife. You don't know that that's going to be the case. And we know, of course, there's only one circumstance under which your unbelieving spouse is going to come to Christ, the sovereign drawing of the Lord. But in the meantime, you obey the Lord. Whatever it is that's coming down the pipe to you. Only as the Lord has assigned to one each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct on all churches as a standardized teaching. 
Okay, so here's how it all shakes out according to this text. If you are in a situation where you have a, an unsaved um, spouse, if that spouse is willing to stay with you, you keep in the marriage. You keep in the marriage. If they insist on leaving, let them leave, and now you are free to remarry. Now you're free to remarry. Um, let me say something, too. Some, knowing this verse, begin to make the home a battleground so that the unbelieving spouse will finally leave and that they can now marry the believing spouse of their dreams. Some with a believing spouse do this as well. I warn you with the lesson Hagar should have learned, God is the El Roy, the God who sees. Husbands, love your wives. Dwell together with them, not pushing them away. Dwell together in an understanding way. Wives, love your husbands. Submit to them as, the, as unto the Lord. Within the estate of marriage, God is drawing a picture. Husbands, you're supposed to be portraying Christ. Do not dare deface, defile the picture. Wives, you are supposed to be depicting to the world the church. Do not dare defile the picture. Right, while we're at it, we need to turn the corner and get this to the gospel. Within the estate of marriage, God is drawing a picture. Within the state of marriage, it is supposed to be a daily reminder of what Christ did for the church. Do you remember what Christ did for the church? He gave himself up for it. To what extent? He gave himself up for the church to the extent that he laid down his life for the church. Your marriage is supposed to be a walking illustration of that to the world regularly. And in case you've never heard it before, you need to hear it now. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down as a price, as a blood payment for sin, his own life. His own life. That's the only way that the church would have ever been redeemed. You weren't redeemed with silver and gold. You weren't redeemed with your good works, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And wives, you're supposed to be a daily proclamation, illustration of how the, Christ, how the church is supposed to be responding to Christ. Could the world looking on, seeing how you're responding to your husband, go, man, there's a wonderful, warm relationship there where they do what they're asked to do, they do their duty, they do their responsibilities, and they do it joyfully. That's what women are called to, that's what men are called to. And that's what you as a disciple are going to be called to. Jesus laid down his life for you, and your response to that, your, the way you respond to that is you say, you're the master, I'm the Lord. You're, you're the master, I'm the slave. And you follow him like a disciple. That's how you get saved. In a minute here, we're going to be uh, doing the communion service again. And we are going to be rehearsing the very elements that God used to redeem you. The bread, which represents the broken body. His body that was broken for you. In his own body, he received the treatment. He received the punishment that was deserved to me for my sin. He shed his blood which was the blood payment, the atoning blood payment that purchases salvation. And we again are rehearsing those very things that were the means by which God saved us. If you have never responded to your Savior, I can't think of a better time than to do that today. Why don't you today realize your goodness will never make it? The, the extent of, of your good works program will never, ever warrant get you into heaven. There's only one way you get into heaven. You have your sins as a whole applied to Jesus on the cross. You have his righteousness 
applied as a legal standing to you. You get the legal standing affection from Christ. Now you're saved. I beg of you, please, don't walk out of here with a whit less than that. To your joy and to the glory of God. I'm going to call upon the music team to come forward in just a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you again, Lord, for this reminder of what marriage is. Thank you, Lord, for your reminder to the church. We're painting a picture. We're portraying Christ to the world. We're not supposed to be working in a world of easy divorce and remarriage. We're supposed to be working in a world where we sacrifice ourselves, we sacrifice our own wants and desires to, to someone else. Lord, help us to walk that way in such a way that the world will look on and not be confused, but will be blessed. And we commit our following time afresh into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Call on our music crew.